CBA at the Bar is proud to announce that this podcast has received the American Bar Association's Award for Achievement. We'd like to thank you, the listeners, for tuning in and for making this show a success. Keep listening as we continue to bring you exciting new content and episodes to come. Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where young and youngish lawyers talk legal news, topics, stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Taft, Statinius, and Hollister, and I'm joined today by Andrew Walker, QC. Andrew is the chair of the Bar of England and Wales in 2018. He studied law at Trinity College, Cambridge, and was called to the bar by Lincoln's Inn in 1991. I really wish we had that phrase here. It's very <laughs> elegant. It seems rather long ago to describe me as youngish, but... <laughs> called to the bar, though. It just sounds so nice. He became a Queen's Counsel, QC, also known as Silk, in 2011. I know that because I'm a big fan of BBC crime and legal dramas. Mm-hmm. And was elected as a Master of the Bench of Lincoln's Inn in 2016. In 2019, he will return to practice, which is something we'll hopefully be able to talk about today. He'll return to practice as a barrister in Maitland Chambers, London. His practice as a litigator, he practices rather as a litigator and advisor focusing on property, company, and commercial disputes, fraud, and non-clinical professional negligence claims. He was awarded the Pro Bono Award in 2009, and he is also a trustee of the Industry and Parliament Trust, a charity which seeks to develop mutual understanding between the British Parliament and the worlds of business and commerce. Andrew. Welcome to At The Bar. Thank you, John. Very glad to be here. Thank you for coming. So you are the chair of the Bar Council of England and Wales. For those Mm -hmm. of our listeners who are unfamiliar with that organization, can you describe it? What's its membership look like? What's its purpose? Uh, Its purpose is to be the representative organization for barristers in England and Wales. Um, Perhaps just all to explain, there there are two types or two main types of lawyer in England and Wales. There are barristers and there's about 16,000 practicing barristers about 50,000 people who've gone through the practice, the, the training, but aren't now practicing as barristers. So the 16,000 of us, there's a whole host, host of solicitors as well. There's about 150-odd thousand of them. Uh, and they have a separate organization, the Law Society. So we're the representative organization, very similar um, in a lot of what we do to the Chicago Bar Association for mm-hmm. attorneys in Chicago. But we have the added um, element that we regulate our barristers as well. We do that through... Uh, uh, an independently operating body within the Bar Council, but it's still technically oh. speaking done by the Bar Council. So when you say regulate, you mean in terms of disciplinary procedures, in terms of uh, codes of conduct, that kind of um, thing? Uh, yes, but wider. So they, they write our code of conduct, but they tell us what other obligations we need to comply with. They will give us guidance on how to comply with those, and they will exercise disciplinary functions. So they will investigate complaints, they'll decide what action to take, and they um, have an arrangement with the Inns of Court, which is the other side of the uh, barrister's profession in in England and Wales, to run uh, disciplinary panels. How's your bar year going so far? Um, it's been absolutely fascinating. It's been, it's been, it's always eventful. It's been a little more eventful than I anticipated. We had a strike uh, by our criminal barristers a couple of months ago. It went on for about three months. What was behind that? Um, uh, fees, as ever. Mm. Um, our criminal defence fees are paid as part of our legal aid system, okay. um, and the system was changed at the beginning of April, and the bar wasn't very happy with the change. Um, although I think, in fundamentally, they're just not very happy with the levels of, re- of remuneration um, where they are now. Uh, haven't been happy with them for years. Mm-hmm. We had 20 years of reducing remuneration in various stages, either just gently or big cuts any one time. It's not been going up for years. It's 
problem we're seeing here as well. Yeah, and a whole host of other challenges in the criminal court. So I think they just decided they'd had enough. So, so we had a little so bit of what strike happens for a while. When, when the criminal defense attorneys <laughs> strike, does everything just grind to a halt? Well, uh, it, it, yeah, it depends what you mean by strike, because we're all sole practitioners and competition law applies Which is something to I also want to get into. Yeah. It's fascinating. So we can't have collective action as you would with a union. Right. So it was a lot of people just simply deciding that they wouldn't take certain types of case. And they decided okay. that with this new fee scheme, they wouldn't take cases under the new fee scheme. And that's the sort of thing that comes in gradually, because as, as criminal lawyers will know, you have a lot of small hearings at the beginning of a case. The trial right. comes some way down the line. Right. And we never got to the point of people, by and large, refusing to do trials. But that's where it would have ended up. So the situation resolved, or is it are we've we still um, there? I'd say we've had it come up with another truce with the government. They <laughs> okay. agreed to put another £15 million into the scheme, which is about 6.5% which is not a bad outcome. Um, and um, we agreed to go back to work. <laughs> but on the basis that everyone's accepted that this is not the end of the um, dispute, shall we say. Not no, the end it of never the is when it comes to funding for that kind of thing. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So one of the, the things that you mentioned um, a minute ago was the difference between barristers and solicitors. Uh, for those of our listeners who don't watch as much BBC on Netflix as I do, can you get into that a little bit? What's the difference? Well, I'd encourage them to watch BBC on Netflix. Yeah, I mean, it's great. Um, it, the, the difference is pr probably best described as your difference between your attorney's with a, with a general practice and trial trial and appellate attorneys. Mm. Barristers focus on advocacy and on sort of related advisory work. So we'll do the litigation strategy advice, that sort of thing. Sometimes we'll do some specialist advice as well. So some of my practice is property law. So I might advise on um, aspects of a development. You know, how do you deal with certain problems in it? Um, but the main difference is that we do the advocacy in all the higher courts. Solicitors can do advocacy in the lower courts but they are really the guys who do the, all the transactional work and all of the day-to-day -day running of the litigation. So is it divided up purely by role within the advocacy system or also by areas of practice? Um, just by role. Okay. Uh, solicitors can practice advocacy, but they need to get an ex extra higher court rights, so they need to do extra training. Mm -hmm. And the truth of the matter is, although there are some very good solicitor advocates, they're not doing the advocacy day in, day out that we are doing. So it's a functional separation. It's not a practice area special. Uh, okay. And separation. you said that all barristers were essentially solo practitioners. Uh, how does that work? Maybe get into the in-system a little bit, I suppose. Well, <clears throat> you can be an employed barrister, so you could be an, an employed advocate in the same way as a solicitor would be. But so you can work for a large law firm? So you can work firm. for a large law firm and okay. still be a, a practicing barrister. But most of us, it, so it's about coming on for five-sixths of us, so sort of 12,500 out of 15, 16, are in private practice. We're organized mostly into sets of chambers, which are just groups of practitioners who've come together. They all remain sole practitioners, you're not mm -hmm. partners. You're running your own practice. Um, but we pool our, all our administration. Okay. So all, all of our um, IT, HR, all our, we have the same staff. We will hire a building together but we all remain sole practitioners. Interesting. So it's a loose confederation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you, you see it occasionally. The solicitors can do the same. Um, and you might say it's a little bit like the JEP here in Chicago. I mean, you're getting a whole load of individuals in doing their own thing mm -hmm. uh, separately, but, but using pooled resources and, and you know, single building, uh, single IT system. Um, and you simply set up barriers so that all of your confidentiality and conflicts are avoided in that way. Do you see that trending 
in a different direction now that law firms are getting bigger and more international. London's becoming one of the great legal hubs. Well, it has been for a while, but even more so now, one of the great legal hubs of the world. You know, you have so many law firms, mega law firms there. Uh, are more barristers going toward that or is it still a pretty isolated phenomenon? Um, there are there are some law firms that have decided to take some advocates in-house. I mean, Herbert Smith Freehills, which is a sort of UK and Australian firm, uh, has for a long time had a very small group of advocates, including some QCs. Um, but they're the only firm that's really gone into that in a major way. Most of the firms have, have seen that there's real value in having a separate pool of mm. experts um, you can go to and you can pick your expert for the case. You don't have to pick one of your in-house guys. You've got a you know, choice of 16,000 people and you can right. pick anyone out of that that you want to. And so certainly when we talk to the um, government about you know, what might the position might be after Brexit, which we'll come on to, I know, yeah. a little bit later on, all the city law firms are saying, no, we, we like this arrangement. This is a great strength that we can pick the advocate yeah. for the job. The exact person for the case. Yeah. And you don't have to worry about them when they're not on that case. You're not exactly paying their You're not paying them. They're not an overhead. Yeah. You're bringing them in as a, as a consultant, effectively. Is that – does that create a more competitive environment, do you think? Everyone's creates, on. Yeah, well, it creates a very competitive environment between the advocates, the right. barristers. Are, even we're competing against other people in our own chambers. Right. And it's, high, you know, it's highly competitive. And the person I want to lose, lose to least is my colleague in chambers, yeah. who I know really well. And I'm going to have to meet him over a cup of tea or a beer later. And, you know, and, <laughs> and hear about yeah, it. And hear about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> His wonderful triumph when he beats me. Even worse if he's more junior to me. <laughs> of course, for me, that never happens. But for some, it no, does. No, right, right. For lesser um, lawyers, yeah, obviously, obviously. Um, so no, I mean, for, from from an advocacy point of view, it's it's highly competitive. Um, so how does that system work with the in system? You're a member of Lincoln's Inn, which is one of, as I understand it, the four inns. Uh, how does the chamber system fit into that? Um, it, it's separate. All of the inns own buildings in London, and there are a lot of sets of chambers in buildings owned by the inns. But the inns are, um, I suppose, the tra the traditional. Um, legal bodies for barristers. You all have to be a member of an inn. Mm -hmm. The inn is responsible for looking after your training um, and for looking after you when you're a very junior practitioner. But they don't they don't get involved in the commercial side of things. They're really there as an educational body, um, a bit like a college. I mean, it's a, they're there to, to to help bring people together, create a bit more of a collegiate atmosphere. But all of the professional side is done separately. So my set of chambers. It doesn't have anything to do with my inn. It doesn't have to be in my inn. It could be anywhere. There are chambers all the way around okay. the country. You know, the four inns are just, in, are just in London. And when you say they do the training, that's the training of people who are already barristers, or are they involved in the law school aspect of things? Well, we have um, somewhere in between. We have a dedicated training course for okay. barristers at the moment. We're going through some changes um, shortly, but at the moment it's a one-year course, and that's run in educational institutions around the country. But there are elements of um, sort of side training that are done by the inns that are a little bit broader than the practical skills training that you're getting on that course. Sure. Um, and so, you know, there'll be sort of lectures, um, people can um, you know, have lunch or dine together with senior practitioners and learn a bit more about the profession, build up some networks. Um, and then they are responsible for some initial training during the first three years once you're fully qualified, once mm -hmm. you've been called to the bar and are practicing. Um, there's a sort of basic requirements you have to do for some advocacy training, some ethics training, and the inns organize all of that. So the the senior practitioners that you, the, the younger practitioners uh, have a chance to uh, associate with there, 
what's their incentive for taking on those younger pupils? Is it tradition? Is it a sense of obligation in the profession? Is it are they developing their own networks through that? Um, it's the first two. I don't think you're really developing your own networks. Maybe very occasionally, but no, mm-hmm. really, it's it's tr- it's it's tradition and it's an attitude of um, service to the profession. It's the way we've always done it. We see the benefit to our profession in doing in doing all of that. Um, we know that as a profession, we are stronger if we're supporting all of the members of that profession. A set of chambers would t- typically have a structure from the most junior people to the most senior. And the senior people see the interest in looking after the more junior ones, helping them with their difficulties, encouraging them to develop their practices. Uh, And because we're a profession where unless you're employed, you're by and large a sole practitioner, we are 12, 12 12,500 sole practitioners. How do you generate a, a, a feeling of ethos and collegiality and support? if you're not willing to put yourself out and, and, and do that for your profession. That's and fantastic. We, we do it for free. I mean, we, we generate tens of thousands of hours a year given effectively by those senior practitioners for free, and it makes us a much better profession as a result. I, I don't doubt it. And you've been uh, doing it for so long. I did a little bit of research um, for the interview, and I saw Lincoln's in has been around since the reign of Henry V. Um, right, fourteen hundred. Well, yeah, that, that's that's the earliest document. I mean, we think it might be older, but oh, um, is that right? No one's you, quite you're sure. competing with the um, the inner and outer temples. Well, they the, go back the, to thirteenth century, right? Yeah, these origins are all lost in the mist of time. Though. I'm going off Wikipedia <laughs> here, so yeah. Well, Wikipedia doesn't do mists of time. Yeah. Wikipedia is like, like a little bit sort of more hardcore. Still, than Henry the Fifth, you know, Battle of Agincourt and all that. There's some vintage there. Oh yeah, and um, of course things have changed a little bit since the thirteenth century and fourteenth century, but. Um, it's that, that that history is is part of the strength in the sense that you when you become a member of the profession you're becoming part of that history, and that is a real strength. You know, that history means the you know, commitment to the rule of law, commitment to the public interest, mm-hmm. uh, and you you're automatically buying into that and you're becoming part of that. Um, and if you're looking at um, the ethics of junior lawyers or the way junior lawyers see the world, I think having that background as part of what is become you know, the essence of what you are becoming when you become a barrister is a real strength. Gives them a sense of grounding and yeah. expectation, uh, it, and 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 sort of reinforces that peer pressure to do the right thing, right, and to want to do the right thing, right. Um, so that you know you're you're not subject to what you might otherwise give into you know, some of the temptations of some of the, the some of the unethical practices you see in some other areas. Sure, um, it, and you, I think you said earlier how big. How many barristers are there in it's London? About, six, about sixteen thousand across, so, across England and Wales. So a very small community, really, yeah. when you consider the size of London. I think in Chicago we have uh, thirty thousand plus lawyers. You have a, just you here. have more lawyers over in the states. We're a highly <laughs> legalistic society. Yeah, but we got all those traditions from you guys. So. Yeah, but 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 because there, there are far more solicitors. So if you right. look at the number of solicitors in London, there would be there would be far more than there are barristers. Sure, and that's because we the way we've we've split the two professions up. Okay, I think that's probably a great place for us to take a break. We will be right back. This episode of At the Bar brought to you by One Legal. America's top-rated court filing solution. OneLegal's simple workflows and local support make it easy to file in large and complex courts like Cook, Marion, and L.A. counties. Chicago bar members get up to 15% off. Learn more at onelegal.com backslash CBA. 
And we're back. Andrew, uh, the big story over in the UK, it's no secret, Brexit. Uh, for those, just to remind our audience, this was the, arose out of a 2017 popular referendum where UK voters decide to leave the European Union. Uh, I think, if I remember correctly, my, his, my history, um, the UK has been in the European Union since the early 70s, yeah. right? Um, and there's a, currently a departure date of March 29th, 2019. Uh, there's, it's caused a great deal of turmoil in the UK, as one would expect. Uh, it forced the resignation of the last prime minister, David Cameron. Uh, there's renewed talk, if I remember uh, my economist correctly, of Scotland leaving the UK. Um, it brought in the administration of Theresa May. Uh, there have been some very highly publicized recent cabinet resignations um, from well-known Brexiteers like Boris Johnson, the former London of mayor and now the former foreign secretary. Yep. What is it like to be a practicing lawyer in London right now, given all this? Um, for most people, they're not paying attention to Brexit. I mean, it's not it's not affecting their day-to-day -day practice. Um, of course, it, you can't get away from it in the news because it's consuming all of our politicians' thinking time right. you know, to the extent that they're, they're, they're giving time to thinking. Um, it's consuming all of the legislative time in government, so right. there's very little else being done at a political level. Um, but that is all for most practitioners, unless you're a practitioner in EU law itself. For most practitioners, it's in the background. The commercial okay. practitioners have obviously got a, a, a thought to you know, have, what's the position of London going to be long term? Is Brexit going to have any implications for mm -hmm. it? But for most people, they're just getting on with their daily lives, getting on with their practicing life and waiting to see what the um, final outcome is. That's uh, exciting, if nothing else, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, it, it, well, it, it's one of these things where the closer you are to the, to the middle of it, the more interesting it is as a subject. Okay. Um, but exciting only in the sense that if you're going down a ski run at full pelt, it's quite exciting. But you know that <laughs> if you don't do, take that next corner correctly, it could get even more exciting. So one of the things that we see in the news constantly about Brexit is the difference between hard and soft Brexit. Can you explain mm. that to our audience a little bit? Um, yes, I can. It's, it's all just to do with the closeness of the relationship afterwards. The soft Brexit um, is the, the relationship that is pretty close to what we have at the moment. At the moment. So we've still got um, some of the structures that we have from the EU that we sort of carry those over. Mm -hmm. um, the hard Brexit is one where we say, no, we sort of set up a hard border. We have a treaty negotiation from, from a free trade point of view. But essentially, we're um, a third country coming to the EU with well, looking for a deal. We want a better deal, of course, than everybody else. But it's it's very much more of a functional um, sort of business-like relationship. Okay. So it's, it's all to do with the closeness of the relationship long term. Right. So if you're... I, I, I almost have difficulty believing that all the lawyers there aren't freaking out. Because... <laughs> It means, as you said, uh, if there's a hard Brexit, for example, that hundreds, possibly thousands of laws need to be rewritten, rules and regulations, administrative codes, everything. It's almost tabula rasa. You can't just go back to the 70s. And, right? Yeah, except that the, the, the way it's going to happen is that we are going to write all of the EU laws into our own laws to start with. Okay. <clears throat> so sure. there's going to be no immediate change from that point of view. What it gives us, and this is one of the perceived advantages of it, is that the right to change those laws. Mm. But you've got 40 years worth of law, it's going to take you quite some time before you make any realistic changes to a lot of that. Okay. 
Yes, there are going to be some complications. So if you've got an agency at an EU level that's responsible for regulating something at the moment, well, we will now need on our own agency for that. Right. So there'll be that sort of complication to, to, to be considered. And there will be complexities that people haven't spotted. But at the moment, the, the, the heavy lifting on this is being done by those who do the drafting of laws for the government. Which are, you know, civil servants do, doing all that work internally. Sure. So you'll need to build a lot of those institutions. Uh, I imagine you'll need to um, rework a lot of relationships with businesses on the continent, right? Because you won't have things like freedom of travel anymore. If it, Again, assuming it's a hard Brexit, uh, you won't have people practicing across borders the way they do now. Um, has all of that, as counterintuitive as it may seem, proven to be a boon for the legal industry? Um, I, I wouldn't put it like that. I mean, there will be inevitably in a process of change a need for legal advice. Right. If you're trying to set up a new arrangement or you're trying to f trying to work your way through a new deal between the UK and the EU, you'll need legal advice. Um, but I think for, for most lawyers in most practice areas, it's not going to have a massive difference. I mean, if you're a criminal lawyer, the criminal law isn't going to change. Well, right. Um, if you're a family lawyer, the family sure. law isn't going to change. What will change is if you have an international dimension that's got a European angle to it. So mm -hmm. say you're dealing with a, um, an English husband and a, a Polish wife, say, then that will be more complicated unless the final deal that we do is one that, that keeps it as relatively straightforward as it is now. Um, but until we know what the deal is, we don't know quite how complicated it's going how to be. How would you rate the odds of a hard versus soft Brexit? Ooh, that's the that's the million dollar or ten million dollar question. Yeah. Um, I'm not asking you to put money on it. <laughs> well, I'm certainly not going to. Uh, the the chances of a, of a of a uh, there's, there's well there's another distinction to be drawn I think okay. between a disorderly Brexit and an orderly one, and I think the risks of something disorderly, possibly the risks of something hard may be going up at the moment because no one has any clarity about whether the deal that the UK government's put on the table is going to fly in Europe. Um, the European negotiators, which are being, it's being done by the Commission, which is one of the European Union bodies, taking a very hard line. I think there's a lot of political work going on behind the scenes directly with all of the sure. other 27 nations. Sure, those are opening nations. positions, right? Yeah, and we will, we will see where that goes. Um, the difficulty is that well, there's a real difference between the European Union and the United States because mm -hmm. <clears throat> the European Union is essentially just a legal construct. Right. It's a whole load of nations who've simply said in certain areas we will agree to do a whole load of things together right. and we will agree to effectively trust you on certain things um, in a way that we wouldn't do if you were in another country somewhere else. Um, that's one thing. You know, the United States is a nation. Yes, you have all of the states, but you, 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 know, you have something else to believe in. There's a single nation, the United States of America. That is, just doesn't exist at an EU level. And that's quite doesn't a big... exist as much here anymore either. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll leave you to, yeah. worry, to worry about that. But that, that's, a, that's a really big distinction. And what it means is whenever you're trying to work out what the future is, you've got to think, well, how does that fit with this legal construct we've got? Mm. Um, you know, we've got this contract. How do you fit into this contract if you're going to stop being a contracting party? So it's quite, it's much more complicated from a legal perspective. And I don't think our politicians have always got the uh, legal difficulties. <laughs> no, yeah, I think that's a, a beautiful understatement there. Um, but certainly lawyers tend to thrive on uncertainty. Yeah, they do. Um, in, in the sense that our clients end up needing coming to us and right. needing advice. Right. Um, but that's not something we would... You know, we aim for, we would rather it was straightforward. Certainly from a bar council level, we've been sure. doing an awful lot of work trying to explain to the public, to our politicians, to the 
um, administration officials who are having to deal with all of this, what the basic implications are. Because right. we see there's a real public interest. What lawyers have should at least be doing in this space, leaving aside politics, is trying to explain the complexities to people, trying to explain what it really means. If only those complexities had been explained before the referendum. Well, yeah. Some of us tried. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the... Uh, one of the things that came to mind a moment ago was uh, a couple months ago, the Chief Justice of the Irish Supreme Court, Frank Clark, was here and gave a talk at the CBA. And he said that he thought Brexit would be a real stimulus for Ireland's um, legal uh, community and industry because he thought Ireland, or his thinking rather, is that Ireland is going to be the only common law country. You're smiling right now, so there's, <laughs> yep. I, I can't wait to hear the answer. Um Ireland's going to be the only common law country remaining in the EU, so there's going to be a lot of demand for Irish lawyers. Uh, do you think we're going to see a lot of London barristers uh, commuting to Dublin on a daily basis? Um, well, I think my immediate reaction is you would say that, wouldn't you? <laughs> um, you know, if there's anyone senses an opportunity, then they, they will, will want to push that opportunity. I mean, I think there, there, is, there is something in what he says. It's not true to say that Ireland will be the only common law country left. There are, there are two others, Cyprus and Malta, that have very strong common law um, jurisdictions, but Ireland will be the, the largest common law jurisdiction left. Um, and so when it comes to arguing a common law position in, in Europe, they'll be the only ones to do it. Mm -hmm. um, I think that actually will mean that the influence of the common law in Europe will probably become difficult to maintain or harder to maintain than it is at the moment with the UK there fighting our corner. Um, you, don't, you don't think Malta is going to be able to pick up the slack? I think it might be a little tricky. I mean, yeah. it's great. great I mean, it, was, it, was, it was relevant when the Ottomans were around. Yeah, well, Cyprus, Cyprus, similarly, yeah. but the truth of the matter is that you know the continental Europe has a yeah, very different system sure. um, from the common law system. But Ireland will have some opportunities for those uh, English barristers who want to carry on being able to practice, get practicing rights mm -hmm. of audience in the Court of Justice of the European Union in, in, in Luxembourg then they will need to be members of a member state bar. And once England sure. ceases to be part of a member state, they'll have to go somewhere else. And some have gone over to Brussels and joined the Belgian bar. Um, others, For others, Ireland will be the obvious choice. So th there's an opportunity there for Ireland. But that's in a relatively limited sphere. Okay. Um, I, I say he would say that, wouldn't he? Because the Irish um, bar and indeed the Irish government and judiciary have very much got beh behind the idea that they should be the port of call for commercial work <laughs> after Brexit. But you might say so of the Dutch, so of the French, so of the Germans. Sure. I mean, everyone is everyone trying, to, trying to do that. Yeah. Ireland has the advantages, or some of the advantages we have. You know, it's got the English language, um, it's got the common law system as part of its national system. Right. But um, Dublin isn't London. Yeah. So long-term consequences, I, I know this is incredibly difficult to get into, um, but assuming a negotiated middle road kind of Brexit and people come to their senses, um, which is certainly in the interest of both sides, I think, uh, how do you think it'll affect the practice of law over there? Um, I don't sense that it's going to have a significant impact. If you're, if you're a law firm operating across Europe, yes, you will have to restructure probably, depending mm -hmm. on what the final deal is. Um, probably that, grow, right, to hedge? Um, well, you, well, you'll probably have to just simply, re you'll probably stick with what you have at the moment, but we'll just restructure your firm's internal arrangements so okay. that you've got individual firms inside the European Union and your firm based in London. Um, but that's manageable. It's not, it's not ideal, but it's, but it's manageable. We're likely, I think, to be able to have a system whereby UK judgments are as enforceable as they are now and mm -hmm. EU judgments as enforceable as they are now. Um, and if 
we can't negotiate that. We've got existing international treaties that will that will cover that. So that's unlikely to change significantly. The area of uns- greatest uncertainty is probably just the rights of the individual lawyer. Um, How so? Um, well, the UK will remain open because we've always been open to for practitioners internationally coming over to the UK and practicing. We <clears throat> have a very open regulatory system. We're not proposing to change that so long as we don't change our immigration position so that you can come and work, get working visas, which I'm hoping we we won't change. I don't which think has been will. one of the hot button issues behind Brexit, right? Well, it has, but not, 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 not at the not, professional not, level. Not at a professional level. Right. So uh, the UK is going to remain open. The question will be how open are the 27 EU nations. Okay. We'll have to have separate arrangements for each one because it'll be a matter for their national law. Mm-hmm. Some of them are quite closed to foreign lawyers. Some are quite open. So, But we'll be in the same position as a, as a US attorney wanting to practice right. in France or Germany or whatever because we'll be a third country unless we can negotiate something better than that. So at an individual level, there may, there may be some greater difficulty in going over to Europe to advise a client. Um, But if you're a law firm, you'll have other ways of dealing with that. If you're a member of the bar, well, we do most of our stuff from London. But we're we're already doing work internationally. Mm -hmm. London isn't depending on being part of Europe. It never has. Never has. A lot of the work that's come to London has come from everywhere else. Right. So just because we're cutting ourselves off in some way from the EU sort of freedoms of movement and establishment and so on shouldn't really make that much of a difference. So it's not all doom and gloom. I don't think it is all doom and gloom. Uh, I mean, we don't we don't have the same benefits as other parts of the economy in the sense that we're not going to be running off to Japan and suddenly having some new free trade agreement yeah. for legal services with Japan. It's just not, not like that. Right. Um, we know that actually getting um, legal services trade agreements internationally are very difficult indeed. So there's that not that opportunity, whereas some other areas of the economy are saying, great, we can go off and get some new free free trade deal. But I think the flip side of it is we also don't see that there's necessarily going to be that much of a negative. Okay, that's a happy note. I think we'll take our second break on that. Well, I've got to be happy about it. (laughs) (laughs) This episode of At the Bar brought to you by One Legal, America's top-rated court filing solution. One Legal's simple workflows and local support make it easy to file in large and complex courts like Cook, Marion, and LA counties. Chicago bar members get up to 15% off. Learn more at onelegal.com backslash CBA. And we're back. As always, we want to close out today's episode with a game we call Stranger Than Legal Fiction. I've done a little digging around the interwebs and found a strange in honor of our guest UK law that is still on the books. And I've made another one up completely. And we're going to see (laughs) if our resident Silk can distinguish which law is real and which law is fake. Andrew, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So option number one. In the UK, it is illegal, in fact, a treasonable offense to affix a postage stamp with the monarch's likeness to a letter upside down. That's option number one. Uh Option number two, in the UK, all whales, porpoises, porpoise, porpoises, porpoises, and sturgeon must be offered to the reigning monarch before being sold or used for personal purposes. Which one's real? The second one. Why? 
Uh, mm, that's a tri- that's a tricky one. I want to see why. the barrister's reasoning, how a barrister's um, mind works. Um, partly there's there's something rattling around in the back of my mind about it. Oh, really? Okay. Um, particularly about sturgeon. Um, <laughs> but partly also because yeah, I mean, if the first one was right, it's because it will be a likeness of the queen, rather than actually a real stamp. Yep. But putting it upside down. Ah, you got it. You got it. Although, <laughs> although, although, the stamp one is a common myth. Apparently, I saw there was a. I found an article in the Daily Mail saying it was real, and then did some research and found out they were just they weren't double checking their sources on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but whales, porpoises, and sturgeon are considered "quote unquote" royal fish, mm-hmm. and when taken, are the personal property of the monarch as soon as they come ashore. Um, as part of her royal prerogative. Uh, and I actually found some Blackstone commentary on this. He was yep. praising uh, praising it. And he, he said that they are fish of superior excellence, which is a little bit redundant, but I'm not going to question <laughs> Blackstone. He's got some pedigree there. Um, and this actually became a formal law during the reign of Edward II. Yep. Um, for, for those me. of... Uh, us on this side of the pond who probably don't know their uh, British uh, royal history as well as the English and the British. Uh, that is the somewhat perhaps unfairly foppishly portrayed king in Braveheart uh, who lost the <laughs> Battle of Bannockburn to Robert the Bruce, although in the end it ended up going the other way. <laughs> Indeed it did. But well done, sir. Very well, well thank done. Thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me to be part of this podcast. Thank you for joining us. It's been a really great time. Uh, that's our episode for today. I want to thank our distinguished guest, Andrew Walker, QC, for joining us and reminding us that, reminding us as your American cousins that the world spins on despite our recent tribulations. Uh, I also want to thank everyone who makes this machine run, including our executive producer, Jen Byrne, and our sound crew, Ricardo Islas and Steve Weirich, and our friends at the Legal Talk Network. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at CBA at the bar, all one word. Please also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, wherever you download your podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the CBA, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you soon at the bar.